So it very naturally felt like it would lead into this week, this challenge that I feel God wants to lay on our hearts as to the routines, the patterns of our lives. The things we do very naturally, the things that we do week to week without really ever considering it. I was wondering if I could have a quick show of hands, if there are people here who have or do work in schools. Okay, so a good few people. So uh, here, I believe it's Estin. When I was over in England, it was Ofsted. But you have these organizations that will come in and evaluate how you're doing. They come in and they'll grade you. I had the privilege when I was back in England to be working for a sports coaching company. And so we would come in and we would teach the children PE while teachers took their PPA time. So I taught uh, every term different subjects. I could tell you pretty much the entire rugby curriculum off the top of my head because we would do it every week. So for term two, we would go in on the Monday and I would teach the same lesson six times and then I would do it Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday and Friday. So I was fairly good at teaching rugby. I can't play it, but I could teach it fairly well. But we were involved. We were a part of school life. And the weeks turned into months. The months became the terms. And suddenly a school year has passed you by. And you find school has that pattern, that way of doing life. I will never see a year as January to December again. I don't know if you can when you've worked in a school. It just runs on terms. But something happens in schools. Because it's rolling on as it does. And then the secretary takes a phone call. And they connect it through to the head teacher. And sat on the other end is an Ofsted inspector or an Eston inspector. And they say, you know what? We're coming to visit. I believe here it's 48 hours. Do they have to give you 48 hours? A week. So in England now, Ofsted only have to give 24 hours notice that they're going to turn up to your school. So suddenly... This phone call comes through. The head teacher plays it cool. Not a problem. Perfect. Always ready for you. Do you want to come in today? Things they never say out loud. They hang, they hang up the phone. And school life changes drastically. If a teacher had a plan for that evening, they are going to cancel that plan because they are not leaving the school probably before 9 o'clock if their classroom was vaguely organized. And I've worked with some amazing teachers, and I don't belittle them at all. But when you get a phone call from an organization whose sole job is to come in and examine everything you do, and look for the faults in it. Teachers, head teachers, support staff, PE coaches go into overdrive. You suddenly see all of those blank walls in classrooms covered in the most stunning wall displays you could ever find. And they always do it with that amazing crimped paper around the sides to make those pretty borders that look like waves. It's an amazing moment. Books are marked, are up to date, and conveniently, the very best children's work is just slowly ushered towards the top of the book pile, along with one child who struggles but has been very well marked and shown huge levels of improvement. Cleaners go into overdrive. Spaces in the school hall that have always been a collection of leftover pasta and peas is now cleaned, hoovered, and polished. The whole place, in the space of 24 hours, will look completely different. When they arrive, the next day, they are arriving to a different school to one they phoned. As I said, this isn't a criticism of teachers. I think they do an amazing job. But you find that teachers will even default to strong lessons. They won't always deliver the lesson that was planned. They'll go to one of their strong lessons, the lessons that they know they will excel in. 
In my experience as a sports coach, one of three things happened. In some schools that didn't trust us, we were simply asked not to attend, which was a huge vote of confidence for us. Uh, in other schools, we were asked to attend and clean the sports cupboard, which happened on three occasions in one school, and every time there were massive spiders. And the final one, and possibly the one we enjoyed the most, was we just became that place of release for children who had just had classes with Ofsted inspectors. So we took them to the field and we just let them run around like headless chickens because for the last hour they had to sit there almost perfectly. But it's an odd, odd situation that we find. And as this morning's title gives you an idea just to show, for me, I think the way that Ofsted and Estim work, they create somewhat of a performance. They create a 24-hour show that schools put on. Not because the school isn't doing a good job anyway, but the school knows that they are looking for faults. That's their job. And they don't want them to find faults. So they work incredibly hard to cover it. Schools that would be expected to get needing improvement or in the red will suddenly find themselves graded at good or in yellow. Because when the time comes, everyone goes into overdrive. The truth is, and having watched it from both sides, it's not practical to run school life on the level that Ofsted and Estin expect. But they come in and they produce this performance. So I hope you're sat there wondering why on earth I'm not trying to recruit you for school's work, I promise. But why I'm bringing this to the table. What has the relevance of a school with 24 hours to prepare for an inspection got to do with our lives? as a follow-on to the conversation that Peter has with Jesus. I want you to consider this. What would you do if you took a phone call from God now, saying, tomorrow, I'm coming. I'm spending 24 hours with you. I'm inspecting everything you do. I'm going to work with you. I'm going to be in your house. I'm going to hear everything you say. I'm going to see everything you do. I'm going to rummage through your cupboards. Full disclosure. What would you do? How many of you would stay here for the next 10 minutes and listen to me finish? And how many of you would make a pleasant escape and already begin the process of cleaning up those areas of our lives that we're not sure we want God to see? It leads wonderfully into this morning's reading. June's going to come and read for us Exodus 19 and give us this wonderful insight into what happens for the people of God when he tells them he's coming to show up. There you are. Sorry, I can see you. In the third month, sorry, Mike. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rehobim. They entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and give my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
these are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought the answers back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them toward today and tomorrow. Make them wash their clothes and be ready for the third day. Because on, the, on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all people. Put limits on the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not go up the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. He shall surely be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on him, whether man or animal. He will not be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may he go up the mountain. After Moses had gone down to the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day, abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, the thunder and lightning, the thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everybody in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. <coughs> Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke bellowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended on the top of the Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. Then Moses went up, and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so that they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us. Put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come to the Lord, or we will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, Exodus 19, God calls, tells Moses he's coming. As I said, sometimes I think we like to pretend that God's not in the business of doing that. But here we see it very practically. And Moses is told by God in no uncertain terms, you need to get the people ready for me coming. So we read the following. Moses must consecrate them. He must prepare them to be worthy to be in the presence of God in verse 10. They have to do their washing, which questions how often they washed prior to this. They can't touch the mountain. There's to be no funny business between them in the time building up. They can't get excited and push to the front of the queue. 
And even those in the highest positions have to follow the rules. We see in verse 22, across that collection of 12 verses, God lays out how the people have to prepare themselves. God lays out what the expectation is on his people. God is coming. They have a very simple task to get ready for it. So I want to ask you again, if God was coming tomorrow, what would you need to do? How would you need to prepare? I think there's a few things in the Christian faith that we take for granted. I think there's things that we just assume into our faith as a part of it, but don't necessarily always engage in. I think if I asked you, we'd probably come up with a similar list. I think it's fair to say that we would suggest praying is a fairly important part of our daily lives. Reading the Bible, being kind to one another, coming to church, going to Bible studies. A list of things that I think we would be safe to say fit into what we imagine Christianity looks like. If God was coming, we might consider what our day looked like. Might consider what on that list we're not doing. What could we squeeze in? But as I said, if God was coming, if he said to you, I'm coming and I'm looking at your life, I'm looking beyond just these things, what kind of things would we need to do in the next 24 hours? What is there in your house that you'd want to get rid of? Matthew 6, 19, do not store up treasures for yourself on earth. What is there in your house where it's like, oh, I really felt like I needed a 64-inch TV, but if God's coming, it seems inappropriate. Who is there you need to go and forgive? Matthew 5, 24, leave your gifts there in front of the altar. First go and reconcile them with them. Then come and offer your gifts. Where do you need to go to help someone who's in need? Luke 14, but when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. How do you let your neighbor know that you're a Christian? Because if God's coming and they don't know, in the same way, let your light shine before others, Matthew 5, 16. What happens, and I've touched on this before, what happens if God says, I'm just going to go and speak to that enemy of yours? Luke 6, 27, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. If you're anything like me, this one is incredibly important. Do I need to drop a quick message to my parents and just let them know I care? Matthew 15, 4, honor your father and mother. If God was coming to examine our lives, I wonder how many of those verses would throw up problems for us. How many of those elements of an expectation of a Christian life would we find a challenge? Please know I'm not standing here telling you I have this sorted. My gosh, please never believe that. And I'm not telling you it to make you feel bad. This really isn't a Sunday morning of condemnation. I'm telling you this because every day is a huge blessing. And every moment is a huge opportunity. And the way we act and how we use those blessings and those opportunities should not depend on who we think is watching. 
This isn't a list to impress God. That first collection of things I said aren't in place because when God turns up, we want him to think we're good at this. These are ways of making a huge difference in the world. These are the ways in which we see situations like America and hatred and violence that that country is covered in transform through loving your enemies, doing good to them. It doesn't make sense. It's not something we should just do for a day because we think God might be watching. It's a way of life. It's a calling for us to live by. To the best of my knowledge, God is not coming tomorrow. I may be wrong, but to the best of my knowledge, he's not coming. But what if he was? A school could spend an entire academic year achieving requires improvement or a red score. As I said, after a phone call and 24 hours of preparation, it's not unrealistic for it to get good, to get yellow. In some cases, schools will find themselves jumping to the top of the list green and outstanding because of the work they can do to present something to put on a show. So I want to ask this question. I want us to consider it for a moment. What's the point? What's the point of living a life where all we do is judge who's watching and adjust accordingly? What's the point? A one-day performance seems like a whole lot of work. A one-day performance seems like a lot of fuss for nothing. And if we move it back into our faith, if we take it away from that school context, if we just put on a one-day show, it falls massively short of Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. I'm fairly sure our best performance isn't going to fool God. I'm fairly sure the way we might choose to present ourselves on a Sunday morning could fool the person sat in the pew with you. You're familiar with all my ways. I'm fairly sure we're not fooling God. The problem is, I think at times we're very good at fooling those in this building with us. And we're less good at fooling those in our lives. So what they see is a very tarnished version of God. The presentation of a God that we give them is a double standard, is a performance that has no integrity, has no depth. As I said, I'm not calling us to give up. I'm not telling you that it's lost. What I'm saying is one day of acting isn't going to cut it with God. A quick tidy up, a shower, throwing some clothes in the washing machine. It's not going to cut it. Neither is that extra special bit of cleaning we do when special people are coming. So we take the cushions off the sofa and hoover under them and normally find about seven pounds worth of change. We do that thing where we dust the picture frames along the top because the rest of the time they just get forgotten. If we've collected a rather large amount of rubbish that week, we may be cheeky and just drop it in next-door neighbor's bins to make sure everything outside looks clean as we'd want it. 
Cancel that appointment you've made to go for coffee with a friend and instead replace it with the regular prayer time that you've always held. None of it's worth it. None of it is going to change anything. None of it is going to fool anyone if we make these adjustments in our lives for the sake of assuming that we can get a better grade. (coughs) None of it's going to make any difference. If we do it in the belief we might fool someone. None of it's going to make any difference if we think it's going to fool the one, the one that we do all of this for, God. It's going to make very little difference. This is key. I want you to hear this. What I'm not saying is it's not worth it big picture. I'm not saying all of those things aren't worth it big picture. What I'm saying is if you're going to do it for Sunday and give it up Monday to Saturday, that's not worth it. But if you're ready to journey and instill, sorry, install these attributes, these actions, these commitments, these disciplines daily, then it's worth it. And the difference you will see in your own life, in the lives of those around you, will be huge. Why would we polish the windows today when we're going to let them build up with dirt again tomorrow? Why go to all that effort if we're going to fall back into old, um, old ways? I'm challenging us, myself included, to look at the things in our lives we would change if we thought God was coming tomorrow. Not as a threat. I'm not asking to challenge, you challenge yourselves to make yourself feel bad. I'm suggesting that maybe the things that we feel we need to change are possibly the things God's wanting to work on in us. The things that God wants to work on with us. In verse 4 we read this, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, 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 on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. We know what God can do in our lives. The testimonies of the lives of people in here, the way God stepped in, impacted, changed situations. We know what God can do. We've seen it firsthand. We've seen it through the lives of those next to us. Verse 5 reads this. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be treasured possessions. (coughs) If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then you, out of all nations, will be treasured possessions. God isn't looking for the quick fix. God is saying, if you keep these commands, if you obey the things I've asked of you, you will be a treasured possession to me. I'm not sure that an Ofsted outstanding grade or an Estin Green quite matches up to the idea of being seen in the eyes of the Creator God as treasured. Because as much as I appreciate you guys thinking that I might have everything together, I would far rather be working towards the call that God has for me to become his treasured possession. And the way that we see that outworking 
is for us to have lives that honor him. It's to have lives that engage with him. That first list I put up, to pray, to read our Bible, to attend church, to go to Bible studies, all of those things, they're not to help us get more knowledge. They're not because God thinks it's important that Bibles are still used. All of them, by their very nature, help us to engage in a deeper relationship with him. That's what it's about. That's what this whole challenge is about. Everything that's going on with the Israelites, everything that's going on in our lives is a question of are we putting on a performance for God or are we growing in relationship with him? Are we letting him watch our lives from afar to get a grade or are we welcoming him into our lives to help us grow, to help us develop, to help us nurture? God isn't interested in seeing how well we have learned our lines. He's not interested in how well we know what we should do. God's interested in our whole lives. Our whole lives. Monday to Saturday, including Sunday. Not Sunday to Sunday. which creates this realization. God is as interested in what I do in front of all of you here today as he is when I'm at home on my own. He's as interested in how I conduct myself in the audience of a room full of people as it is when there's just a stranger on the street. The amazing thing is, please, if you've heard everything else and feel a bit disheartened, hear this. And I say this in full belief that it's true. God is less interested in the performance than he is in you. Because the truth is, for some schools, they will never reach those standards. The children that they have just will not compete on the stage of other schools academically. They are condemned to hitting one mark and one mark only. For some of us, we struggle. We have weaknesses. Areas of our lives that actually we are held back. I'm not saying God can't break through, but what I'm saying is God's not expecting you to perform above who you are. He's not looking at us all and grading us all the same. What he's saying is, I want to know you. I want a relationship with you. I want mine and your journey to be our journey. I don't need mine and your journey to be the same as anyone else's. Because God is interested in you. And what that means is the performance we put on in here. The way we might choose to pray when others are listening. The knowledge we have of our Bible to recite before people is irrelevant if we're not spending time in relationship with him. In our own prayer times with him, to get to know him more, to expose ourselves to him. If we're not spending time reading our Bibles, not so that we have greater knowledge to tell other people, but because we want to know more of the God that wants us to be his prized possessions. What would you have to change 
if God was popping over tomorrow. Because the beautiful thing is, God is, in many ways, as we read in that psalm, he is. If he was popping over tomorrow, I promise you this, the first thing he'd want is not for you to be hustling and bustling around the house making sure it's clean. It'd be for you to spend time with him. For you to stop prioritizing all the other things in your lives, checking Facebook, catching Pokemon, catching up on Coronation Street, all of the things we do, that's not, he doesn't want to check that. What he wants is, will we make the time to spend with him? It will change our lives. It will change the lives of those around us. Those things, those areas we know we need to change. For some of us, abundantly clear as I started speaking this morning, we were like, oh man, did not want this this Sunday. But those areas, those areas that maybe don't match up, fall short. The ones that God wants us to start bringing into the light and in line with him, don't disqualify us. God's not waiting for us to bring them forward and then ignoring us. He's not abandoning us. He's not grading us. He's not waiting for us to trip or fall. Instead, what God's saying is this. Bring those areas into the light. Bring them into line with me. Because my plan and my purpose for your life, the reason that I came to bring relationship back to you and me is this. John 10.10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Those lists... Those rules, those regulations, they're not in place to bind us. They're not in place because Christianity is dull. They're not in place to make sure that we spend all our time with our head down, either praying or reading, and ignore everything else that's happening. What God says to those Israelites is this. You've seen what I've done, and there is more to come. Why? John 10.10. I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. I promise you this, church. If we begin to bring anything that we know doesn't match up with God in our lives before him. It won't hold us back. We're not going to miss it. We're not going to wish we could still do that thing. What we're going to find is that area of our life will come to life with him involved. (coughs) Please don't just put on a show because you're worried someone's watching. Please do not put on a show because you're worried someone's watching. When we engage with God, when we begin to bring those areas before him, when we consider what we would need to change if he was popping over tomorrow, those are the points at which we will start to not just see change in our lives, but in the lives of those around us. The gospel is lived through people, not through simple words. If God was coming tomorrow, what would you want to clean up? What would you want to hide? Because the God I love and the God I know isn't saying clean up and hide them. He's saying put them out on display. Let's work on them together. He loves you. You're his prized possessions. He's not challenging you to destroy your life. He's challenging you to live life.